0: Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to have you back again. Glad to be back with you. Um, If you don't know who I am, my name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bradfield and Ruffham Baptist Church. People call us BRBC, and we are a church that's all about loving Jesus together and helping others to do the same. So if this is your first time tuning in, or if you've been tuning in for the past couple of weeks, We are so delighted to have you joining us. We hope you can be encouraged and find truth from God's word today. And if everything I've just said you have memorized in the back of your subconscious, because you've heard it so many times, it's really good to be back with you again, everyone. Welcome to church. I wanna invite you, if you have a Bible near, If you'd like to take that and open up to Esther chapter 4, where we will be this morning. Esther chapter 4, we're continuing on in this story. If you remember last week, we learned about Haman's evil plot to exterminate the Jewish people. And today, we are reading Esther 4. So if you don't have a Bible with you, it'll come up on the screen next to me as well. So, starting at the very beginning of Esther chapter 4, we read these words. When Mordecai learned all that had been done... When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and he ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days." Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Well, over to James.
1: If you ever had those moments in life when you think, who is going to stand up for me? You know, when you feel absolutely helpless and you need someone to help, but you have no idea who's going to fight your corner. I mean, I can think of occasions in my life and I wonder if you can too. You know, maybe, maybe it's a moment where you feel me- misrepresented and you need somebody to vouch for you, but you don't really know who to turn to. Accused of something you haven't done and you feel helpless against the accusation. Struggling emotionally, but you don't really know who to reach out to. Financially in a mess and you're on your own and there's nowhere to turn. Going round and round with an addiction, but you don't really know where to go for help. Or maybe at work or school when you've been bullied and shoved around and you need somebody to fight your corner. you ever had those moments in life when you think, who's going to stand up for me? Who's going to fight for me? Where is my help going to come from? Now, if you've been there before, I think you can begin to identify and understand the tension of chapter 4 in Esther. Because this chapter just screams, there needs to be help from somewhere. There's this looming tragedy. Someone needs to speak up. Somebody has to do something. Now, now so far in Esther, we've seen in chapter 1, remember the king's lavish and luxurious party, and then the brutal dismissal of brave Vashti. And then in chapter 2, there's the search for a new queen of the Persian Empire. And then Esther's found to fulfill that role. And then in chapter 3, we saw the story really take off with Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman. Remember, Mordecai and Esther belonged to the Jewish people in this part of the Persian Empire. But Haman didn't like that. Fact that Mordecai wouldn't bow. So remember, this, this results in Haman's rage, which leads to his manipulative, manipulative and sadistic plot to kill all of the Jews in the empire. Now, Haman has capitalized on the king's passivity, and now the plan to kill the Jews is set in stone, and it's widely known. But today in chapter 4, we'll see the need for someone to speak up, against Haman's plan. Can anyone do anything about this? Someone needs needs to plead the case of the threatened Jewish people. Someone needs to do something. Somebody needs to fight for them. Somebody needs to stand up for them. Now, if the message at the end of chapter 3 was, Oh, no, the Jews need help and they need it fast. Then chapter 4 is (laughs) us moving from a sense of helplessness to finding someone who can plead the case of the people who are now at risk. Someone can stand up. Now we see through Mordecai's heavy requests that this is going to be Esther. So the question I want to ask ask ourselves this morning is so simply this. How does Esther begin to see her role as somebody who speaks up? How does Esther respond to Mordecai's requests? How does Esther stand up for her people? So, this morning, what I want to do is spend some time mapping out the flow of the story. So, so, painting a picture of chapter four first, and then dig into the big questions around this scene. And we'll see Esther, we'll see three key things of Esther that she does to stand up for her people and then we'll bring it down to earth and see how it meets us. So let's jump into this. The first few verses here, let's begin to map out the story. We see Mordecai's distress, verses 1 and 2. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, this is Haman's plan, Mordecai tore his clothes and put put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now Mordecai completely understands what's going on now and he is hurting. Tearing his clothes wearing sackcloth and ashes is a sign of deepest distress and he's weeping and I wonder if you can feel where he is right now this sense of helplessness. I mean have you ever had those moments in your own life when you've been given bad news? When time seems to suddenly stand still, where you feel that immediate lump in your throat, not in your stomach. You feel dizzy, you feel faint, you feel sick, you feel helpless to do anything. But it's not just Mordecai who's in a place of distress. Look at verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay with sackcloth and ashes. There is the rest of the Jews too. Throughout the empire, they're feeling the weight of this. There really seems to be no escape. Remember how vast and how powerful this empire is. This isn't looking good at all. Well, then Esther finds out about Mordecai's distress. Look look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Now, Now, Esther finds out that Mordecai is upset, but she doesn't know why at this point. She is clueless to what has happened right now. But then what happens in the rest of the passage, we get this back and forth between a messenger. The messenger's name is Hathach, he's one of the king's eunuchs. But he delivers messages back and forth between Mordecai and Esther. Now this is a mind-blowing mediated conversation with key details that I think are so often missed. Have a look at this in verse 7 and 8. And Mordecai told him, that this is the messenger here, all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for, the destruct, for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Mordecai tells Esther two things here. This is what's really going on, and this is what you've got to do about it. You've got to go to the king, and you've got to stop this. Now now in verses 9, 10, and 11, Esther then responds very simply, but I can't do this. You you can't go to the king without being summoned. You would die unless he puts out his scepter. Everybody knows this. Everybody accepts this. So, So Esther is basically saying here, that's impossible for me to go to the king. I just can't. I mean, it's like me saying to you, go to London this afternoon, and, and, and when you get to Buckingham Palace, jump over the gate of Buckingham Palace, and run as quickly as you can towards the palace. Um, run past the guards, run past the armed policemen, and, and, then, and then go through the front door, run up the stairs, in, into the, the room where the Queen welcomes everyone, and go have tea with the Queen. You would say, no, I'd, I'd probably be dead. And and that's true. It wouldn't look good for you. Now think about this with Esther. She might be the queen, but she cannot just go in without an invitation. But then we get to a very famous part of the book of Esther. And there's a reason for this. So so Mordecai says to Esther, look, it's time to not be so secret about your people. It's time to speak. It's time to stand up. It's time for courage. And it's time to go to the king. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all of the other Jews. Verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, Esther, if you stay silent, theres a key word, if you stay silent, someone else will save us. Mordecai knows that, look, our God is a God who saves his people. He's going to look after his people. But if you stay silent, Esther, you and your father's house will perish. But who knows? You could be the one who God uses for such a time as this. Now, now we'll come back to this in a moment, but that is Mordecai's reasoning. And here's what Esther says back, verse 16. "'Go gather all of the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat nor drink three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish.'" So Esther is willing to go to the king. She wants the serious fasting and prayer support in this. Then Mordecai organizes the people just as Esther has told him to do. And at this point, the stage is set for Esther to do the most risky thing you could imagine, to go to the king. She's willing to stand up. So let's begin to uh, answer our question here. How does Esther begin to see her role as somebody who speaks up? How does Esther stand up for her people? Three key ways she does this. Firstly, Esther makes it personal. Esther makes it personal. Now, there's a significant realization for Esther in this chapter, a a change that goes on. She moves from trying to make Mordecai feel better because he feels upset to then fully embracing the needs of her people. She goes from sending Mordecai clothes to help him out to then making the matter of the annihilation of the Jews her problem. All of a sudden, it gets personal. She makes their problem her problem. Their plight her plight. Now, she is queen of the Persian Empire, But now it is time to fight for her people. She'll have to face what her roots really are. And in order to stand up for her people, she needs to take a side. By the way, I'm with them. Their struggle is my struggle. Now think about it. She will have to be able to stand in their shoes, be able to identify with her people. She has to stand alongside them. I'm with them. If she is ever going to fight their corner. I remember an amazing moment when I was in Kenya a few years ago, as I sat down and chatted with uh, a really well-known and, well, around here at least, a wonderful lady called Evelyn Nikesa. Now, back in 2008, Evelyn had returned to her hometown in Chuele in western Kenya. And as she returned to her hometown, she looked across the marketplace, she looked at the surrounding villages, and she could see that there were countless children with disabilities who were being neglected, who were being sidelined, and who were being abused. And she wanted to do something about it. So she grabbed together some all the funds that she could, she wanted to offer them something of a of an education. She wanted to make sure they had food. Uh, More than anything, she wanted them to know the love of God through Jesus in the gospel. And I remember talking to her about this a few years on from that. And I remember distinctly when she said, look, their struggle had to become my struggle in order to fight for them, in, in order to stand up for them. And she says, in order to give them a voice, that's a word she'll always use. I was the one who had to step into their situations. You see, Evelyn Evelyn realized she couldn't properly stand up for them until she had made their fight her fight, until she had made their struggle her struggle, their circumstances her circumstances. In order to be an advocate, to mediate for them on their behalf, she had to step into the situations and fight their corner. Isn't it the same for Esther? She's, She's ready to stand up, to speak up when God's people need it. She's willing to go before the king, to do something about the decree against God's people. She's willing to be the one who speaks, so she doesn't sit idly by and say, well, it's their problem, they can figure it out. Now, we don't know yet how she's going to do this, but we do know that she now makes it personal. There's something else here. Now, this next point, I'm going to admit, could be quite difficult to follow. But it is so important. So I want you to track with me. I want you to follow me because it's going to unfold some key things in the book of Esther. Right here and later on in our series. So here's the second thing. Esther knows that silence is not an option. Silence is not an option. Now, now in the Hebrew language, there are two words for the word silence. One word is the word lishtok. And the other, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, is laha karish. See, the first one, lishtok, you would use the word silent. It kind of means doesn't doesn't really make a sound. So, so I think in the book of Jonah, it says the sea fell silent. So it can be used of an inanimate object. But the second word, laha karish, remember that one, means to make yourself deaf to something. So so it would be like if a teacher says to a student who's misbehaved, well, I'll pretend I didn't see that. Or or maybe an exhausted parent who says, oh, I'm just too tired. I can't be bothered to deal with that. I'll just let it pass. Or or the boss who sees a compromise in their business and just turns the other way and pretends they didn't see it. That's it. means to make yourself deaf to something. Have have a look back in Esther chapter 4 in verse 14. Mordecai's words for if you keep silent, you see what he says there? Silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews for another place. Keep following me here, but, it, but you and your father's house will perish. So, so Mordecai is warning Esther about her silence. And he uses this version of the word silence, leha karish. To make yourself deaf to something. If you make yourself deaf to what's going on, Esther, the Jews will be fine. You're the one in trouble. You hear that? Now, now if you read the Hebrew carefully right here, you will notice that Mordecai has a really, really curious word choice because he uses this word silence, Hakarish, twice. He doubles up on this construction. It seems really strange. It's very unique, and it seems a strange way to talk. Now, it doesn't come across in the English as we read it, but in the Hebrew it does. Now, now follow me here, because this, this is remarkable. This double word choice, which is almost unique, and really, in, you know, it causes us to just look at it a bit more, look a bit closely. What's going on here? This only occurs in the Bible one other time in the Old Testament. And it appears, therefore, that Mordecai must be quoting from somewhere. He, he must be, as he's saying something to Esther here about her silence. He's pointing somewhere. Now, now, keep following me here because this is going to unfold more of Esther. And the answer is in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 30, and a key little section at the end of that. Now, this passage in Numbers 30 is, is about making vows, And it's about what spouses are allowed to do when their spouse has made a vow. So they can either affirm the vow that their spouse has made, or they can annul the vow that their spouse has made. So say, for example, I'm just plucking a weird one out of the air. Say if a wife says, I am never going to leave the house again. Well, the husband can either say, affirm it and say, well, that's a great idea. Or he can cancel it out. He can annul it by saying, well, that's a rubbish idea. That's not a good vow, and it's not good for you. Now, in this passage in Numbers, it also says, if you say nothing about the vow, so so you neither neither say yes or no to it, you don't say anything. If you say nothing about this, the the, the vow that your spouse has made on that day, if you remain silent, and it uses the double words that Mordecai uses, then you are saying yes to their vow. Follow me. I'll repeat that. If you say nothing to the vow that your spouse has made on that day, that they made, and you remain silent, then you are saying yes to it. Silence is a yes in the end. Have have a look at this. It's Numbers 30. I'll read from, look at verse 13, 14, and 15. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, that means to let it stand or affirm it, or her husband can make it void, to annul it, to say no to it. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes, he affirms all her vows and pledges that are upon her. He has established them, that means affirmed them, because he has said nothing. He's remained silent, See, He said nothing to her on that day, on the day that he heard it. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. Now think about that. Take this therefore back into Esther chapter 4. Mordecai is pointing to this vow making. This affirming and this annulling and the silence. This is huge for the passage. Let's think about it. Mordecai is therefore saying to Esther, if you do nothing, you are responsible for the coming massacre too. You must somehow annul the vow of the king. If not, you make your, and you make yourself deaf to Haman's plan, there will be blood on your hands too. Now that you know about Haman's plan... If you say nothing about Haman's plan, you are saying yes to Haman's plan. So Mordecai's persuasion is simple. Esther, never underestimate the price of your silence. So so in light of Mordecai's words here, Esther's silence in the face of the looming genocide would be seen as unspoken affirmation. Just as Numbers 30 says, keeping quiet is a choice to accept it. Well, therefore, the person who stands silently by is responsible for the tragedy that results from the vow that they should have annulled. I mean, this is why Mordecai says, you and your father's house will perish. Jews will be all right. You'll be responsible. So think about it. A cold shoulder and a blind eye to this giant problem in Esther 4 is nothing less than saying a loud yes to the atrocity of Haman's plan to kill the Jews. Saying nothing is saying yes. So so therefore, if Esther chooses to be knowingly ignorant, consciously unaware, willingly neutral in the face of such darkness, she will be in trouble. Not the Jews. They'll be saved somehow. God looks after his people. Mordecai knows that. But she's got to act. Now, Now, I love how Mordecai's persuasion reaches another level. Well, he, he kind of says, well, who knows? You could be the one. <laughs> Perhaps you are the one who has been placed by God in this kingdom for such a time as this to rescue the Jewish people. I wonder if he says this with his kind of eyebrows raised, with, an, with, a, with a wry smile and an air of nonchalance. I wonder if he's just like, well, who knows? Maybe it's you that God has placed here to be the one who saves us for such a time as this. Now, Esther can't wriggle away from this now. She understands the consequences, and she's willing to move in. So Esther makes it personal. Esther knows silence is not an option. One more thing. Esther faces the responsibility. Now, think about her dilemma. Both ways are going to hurt. If Esther dismisses Mordecai's reasoning and his request, she'll face the consequences before God of doing nothing. But if she accepts his reasoning and requests she will face the consequences of going to the king. Both ways are going to hurt. But what's the difference? The difference is one of taking responsibility. I mean, she could still at this point have hidden away and made herself deaf to the dilemma. She could have pretended that the conversation between her and Uncle Mordecai had never happened. She could have neglected to face the matter. I don't really want to do with this, anything to do with this dilemma. La, 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 I don't, want, I don't want to face it. I make myself deaf to it. Now think about it. We face this kind of dilemma often in our life. You know, we can be in tough situations when we know it will hurt both ways. But the difference is taking responsibility. Think about that tough conversation in the marriage that needs to be had. You know, something needs to be said. You've got, you got an option there. <laughs> You can say nothing and sweep it under the rug. But here's the thing. (laughs) Things under the rug tend to go rotten. And it will in the long term end up hurting. Or you can have that conversation, which also will be painful. And maybe you'll feel humiliated, but you've got to have that conversation. You see, in that decision, both ways are going to hurt. But the difference is one of taking responsibility. A conversation as a parent that you need to have with a child... Really hard to have that conversation. Saying nothing is going to hurt in the long run. But saying something will hurt, but we know the difference is taking responsibility. A compromise at work. Saying nothing, what does that lead to? It's going to hurt in the long run. Saying something will hurt too. The difference is responsibility. Maybe there's something we need to say sorry about. Maybe it was something that happened a while ago. Think about it. If you pretend it's dealt with, And you've made yourself deaf to the issue. It will come back to hurt. But you know, facing it is going to hurt too. So what's the difference? The difference is taking responsibility for it. You see, in those times, there is pain in both directions. There is a price to be paid. When you hide from something, it involves pain. When you face something, it involves pain. But the difference is responsibility. Here's another way to think about it. Think about Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite who walked on by will pay the price for ignoring the issue. But the Samaritan, too, also pays the price for facing the issue. It's costly both ways, but the difference is one of responsibility. And that's the dilemma for Esther. I can make myself deaf to it, but it will hurt in the long run. Or I can face it, which is going to hurt, too but it's about responsibility. Now have a look at verse 16. These are the words of someone who's taken responsibility. The words of somebody who realizes that they are God placed for such a time as this. Verse 16, Esther says, go gather all of the Jews to be found in Susa and hold fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. We see that Esther is someone who stands up. Now, we're not sure what her plan is going to look like at this and We know it's not easy. But she is the one who's willing to stand in the gap and fight for her people. She sees the need. She knows the consequences, and she bravely faces the issue. Now, remember how chapter 4 starts. Somebody needs to stand up and fight for the Jewish people. And in the moment of their pressure and in the sense of helplessness and distress, somebody did. And with Mordecai's reasoning, she comes to see that she is God placed to be the one who does something about it. God will rescue his people. But she's realizing it's through her. So how does Esther begin to see her role as somebody who speaks up? How does Esther stand up for her people? Esther makes it personal. Esther knows silence is not an option. And Esther faces the responsibility. Well, let's bring this down to earth in our lives. Because this is complex. It's beautifully told. And it's the moment where Esther stands up and fights for her distressed people. But how does it meet us? Now, here's the thing. <laughs> We're not as far removed from something like this. As we might think. Maybe I'll ask it like this. In our deepest distress, in our hopelessness, in our needs, when no one seems to be willing to fight for us and stand up for us, who is it is the one who fights for their people? We know it's Jesus. It's because we have one who looks, in, looks into our distress and our dire needs, and while all else might be lost and helplessness abounds, he fights for his people when we cannot fight for ourselves. Let's retrace our steps here. Jesus makes it personal. Jesus knows our dire needs, and he knows our dire need without him. Without him, we are lost and condemned. We are subject to the punishment we deserve for our sin against God. Without him, the verdict is guilty. We don't stand a chance. Not even our best works will ever cut it or come close. Trying to be a good person will not even come close to washing away the stains. Also, without Jesus, we have no real concrete hope. We might try to put our hopes in the things of this world, but we know we'd only be putting our hopes in things that can be taken away and don't deliver on their promises. Without Jesus, we cannot find rest for our souls. We cannot find the deep satisfaction and security that we long for. We cannot find that secure identity. And then we will continue to struggle to make sense of any pain in our lives. We get lonely in this chaotic and confused world. But Jesus has heard our cry and our distress. He saw our needs and our helplessness. And in his great kindness, he made it personal. He took on human flesh. He became one of us. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, in your distress, I have come to fight for you when you can't fight for yourselves. Now, if you don't know Jesus today, I want you to see this, that my God is a God who has reached into our helplessness and distress and by his grace has given us all that we need in Jesus. Because in Jesus, the hopelessness of our sinful situation can be undone. Because of Jesus, we can have someone who fights our corner, who forgives our sin, who gives us a refuge in this confused and chaotic world, and who gives us a hope that cannot be taken away, who gives us satisfaction and the contentment for our restless souls. Even when all else is lost, in Jesus, someone continues to fight for us. Now, this is all because Jesus has made it personal. I will make their problem my problem. Their struggle my struggle. Jesus makes it personal. Secondly, Jesus knows silence is not an option. I mean, does Jesus make himself deaf to our need? No. Jesus moves in, Jesus acts, Jesus advocates, Jesus moves, Jesus mediates. Jesus stands up to represent us, his people. Jesus does not turn a blind eye and he knows that passing by on the other side of the road will never save the helpless people who have no one else to fight for them. Jesus knows his, that his silence in inactivity will not save us. Jesus doesn't make himself deaf to our need. Thirdly, Jesus faces the responsibility. Tiesta came to a place of facing the gravity of what it meant to save her people. She had to take responsibility and be willing to lay her life down. If I perish, I perish. Jesus came to the place of facing the gravity of what it meant to save his people. He takes responsibility, but he actually lays his life down. You're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't this where Jesus faces the gravity of it all? He faces the anguish. And that's his, that's his wrestle with responsibility. And then from the Garden of Tears to the cross where he died, and then the Easter Garden of Resurrection, Jesus lays himself on the line for the saving of his people. Now this morning in Esther 4, we have found someone who is willing to stand up and fight for God's people. Somebody who lays their life down to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, but we've also seen that we too have somebody who fights for us, his people, and his name is Jesus. I wonder, do you know that today? Do you know that there is a Savior who fights for his people? If Christ is for us, who can be against us? May we be the kind of people who take comfort from knowing Jesus, the one who has stood up for who has fought for, and who saves his people.
0: Really glad we could spend this time together, everyone. But as we go, as we leave together, um, may we hear the words that James quoted at the end from Paul's letter to the Romans, which say this, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So may we go in peace, saints.